The Tom Sumner Program. Old fashioned radio for a new generation. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Tom. You know that. Yay, Tom! I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Have an easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, oh, that's a very good question. Uh, hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? You lucky thing, Mrs. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor, comedian Joe Napote, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers, uh, I mean, I'm sorry, what's his name? Uh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom, how are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Our fellow Americans. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans. And soon... They will be available to everyone. The science is clear. These vaccines will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. They could save your life. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. That's the first step to ending the pandemic and moving our country forward. It's up to you. MTA Flint is nationally recognized for continually seeking to provide sustainable, reliable, and cost-efficient transportation for individuals throughout the region. Through work-related and non-emergency medical transportation and your ride services, MTA is moving people with future and alternative fuel technologies. More information about MTA Flint and specialized services is available at mtaflint.org. Hi, this is Gretchen Whitmer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. More with Dawn Opal from the Food Bank Council of Michigan, straight ahead. What are the existing programs of uh, the food bank, uh, food banks around Michigan, and um, and have they changed or merely adjusted during the pandemic? Are there new programs that have come out of the pandemic? Sure. So, so I would say that the first real change that happened out of the fa- the pandemic with food banking was that we rely on an agency network in Michigan of over three thousand food pantries um, and other kinds of agencies um, that uh, distribute our food. So, um, so a food bank is like a warehouse that orders food and makes sure that it moves. Um, safely and effectively. Um, but a lot of our agencies, um, particularly, um, you know, our smaller agencies had a really hard time during COVID. Um, a lot of them closed, a lot of them changed their hours, um, you know, and were not able to serve as many people in the traditional manner that they had before. So if you think about a church pantry, um, a lot of those, you know, because of the public health crisis, they weren't able to operate um, in the way that they did before. So what's happened is that food banks started doing direct-to-client uh, what we call mobile food distributions, which you've probably seen pictures in the paper or on the news where sure. a, a tractor-trailer comes to a parking lot um, in a, you know, a large parking lot, and the food is directly dropped into clients' cars, and they drive up. It's like a drive-through model. And that became very popular during COVID because it was you know, safe, um, you know, in terms of you didn't have to go into a brick and mortar building and you could stay in your car and um, we could we could meet we could really serve a lot more people more efficiently. 
And so that's a really good thing. The, um, the flip side of that is that, um, is that, of course, you have to have a car and transportation to be able to come out to one of these. Um, and, um, and the, you know, there's a number of, there's a number of upsides and some challenges that are, that are associated with this model, but it has proven to be very cost effective and very efficient. Um, so we do serve a lot more people this way. The question is, um, you know, is this, the right intervention for everyone, and the the answer is probably no. That folks that rely on public transportation, that have mobility issues, that can't carry a forty pound box of food, you know, these are all things that we've got to look at. How do we serve people that might not be able to use this method? So, um, so that's been the biggest change um, through the pandemic, and I think that's what we're really. Um, it, it's both a it's both a very good thing because I think we're reaching more people, but it's also tough because you know a lot of those brick and mortar agencies really did um, have really close relationships with pe- their communities and their clients and um, really knew the need grassroots in their community and I think that's what we're we're trying to figure out how to fill those gaps as we just like everyone as we come out of COVID and try to figure out what's next. Um, I think that's that's kind of where we're at in food banking. Has there been any loss to members of these various networks in communities the way we've seen in in small businesses, for example? You know, I think that's a really good question. I mean, I think that um, I think that we're all, you know, non the nonprofit sector in general has been hit very hard in the same way that the small business sector has. So, you know, so so I think all of them, in terms of their um, their uh, charitable uh, contributions, are down. Um, I think that so for the faith-based community, which we rely on heavily, you know, the church pantries as a part of their mission. Um, I, you know, I think, I think that's a very good question that it remains to be seen if congregants will come back face to face, if there will be the same sort of volunteer force that there was pre-COVID. I think that's a really good question, Tom, and I'm not sure that we really have an answer yet, but, you know, I think as, as things go, you know, quote unquote, back to normal, I think we're going to see at the same for we rely very heavily on large corporate um, volunteer basis to come work in our in our warehouses. So you know, when there's a day of service for a large company, um, they send twenty, thirty people out to the food banks. Um, the question is, you know, whether or not people will go back to work and they'll, you know, and they'll right. um, in the same way where they go back face to face and they'll do a day of service altogether. I think these are some questions that we really have right now about what the future of volunteerism looks like. About you know, sort of how it, it, it all sort of goes hand in hand with, you know, what it looks like to go, quote unquote, back to work. So it's, it's a very, it's a very interesting time. Will the new normal include those, those uh, mobile pantries? Absolutely. I don't think there's any way that, that we won't um, continue to do those. I think that um, in many ways they're kind of a bellwether to show us or a barometer of need. So seeing how many people turn out for those, really helps us understand uh, where a particular area is in terms of um, in terms of their stability with food security. So I, I see those continuing for some time to come. They may not be as many as there were um, during the height of COVID, but I, I certainly think that model will continue, yes. And, and what about the um, 
uh, about volunteers with the various food banks. Um, was was that a problem through through the pandemic as well? You know, it you know it certainly was, and we were fortunate to have the Michigan National Guard deployed to our food banks through the majority. And in, in fact, I think they're they're still deployed through September to our food banks to fill that gap. I think because, that's what we yes, were talking about the last time you were here, Don. That's right, and we were certainly appreciative. Um, you know, while the the state was in a declared state of emergency, we were um, we were fortunate to have those uh, guardsmen out at the food banks um, sorting and packing food, and uh, and and that has been a huge blessing. I think that we're starting to see some volunteers come back, um, and I think that um, we're optimistic that. But we also have to understand that you know that it's you know it's it's very difficult to rely on a volunteer base. Uh, for um, for this kind of food um, uh, emergency food distribution, you know, and, and I think that's why we've we've been very fortunate to have such a good relationship with the state of Michigan and with the governor, um, the governor's office, and with um, with uh, all of the departments of state because you know this is you know, the public health crisis also brought a sort of um, a sort of economic crisis that really did affect a lot of people in the state, and food was a really central component of that. So, um, so it's given us pause in terms of, you know, how much can we really rely on a volunteer uh, backbone of our um, our distribution network, and how much should we be, um, you know, should we be expanding our um, paid workforce to uh, and and our partnerships throughout the state to continue to get this food out to people in need. And and again, the um, this uh, this grant um, is actually given to um, a partnership of, uh, and I'm talking about the two hundred thousand uh, dollars from the Boundless Collaborations uh, Granting Program. It's it's for a partnership between the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services, and the Food Bank Council of Michigan, right? That's right, and that's was very intentional because, um, because they have really been our partner throughout COVID um, and I think will continue to be because food banks, I think that part of, part of what I was just talking about with the need for, you know, a more permanent workforce, I think is actually going to really involve a partnership with government to really think about, you know, where we can integrate and better work together to ensure that we're reaching the people that we need to reach. So it's really important that we have close relationships with social services and with um, with lots of other areas of the Department of Health and Human Services to make sure that the folks that they're identifying who are in need that we are also able to um, to serve through like a no wrong door approach. So that's that's it's very important that we um, that we continue to build that relationship and also build a program that they also see the value in and and want to participate in as well. Now, there's been a tremendous uh, amount of attention given to food distribution. Uh, throughout the pandemic, both because of, of food banks and, and some of the uh, creative programming that's been done there, but also with regard to, you know, just the, the corner grocery store for a lot of people. Uh, you know, there, were <laughs> there was hoarding early on and, all, you know, all kinds of uh, attention paid to, 
you know, how is food going to get to stores and, and all of that. Um, so it's hard to imagine that anybody isn't aware of what's going on with uh, food distribution and in particular with food banks um, because of the need and, and some of the creative programming that's gone on this last year and a half. Um, but for those who who really stayed in, <laughs> really stayed in a <laughs> bubble, Don, where can people find out more about the food bank system in Michigan and if and and whether they qualify? Oh, sure. So, uh, so well, starting very broadly, um, they can learn um, about our statewide network at the Food Bank Council's website, which is fbcmich.org, um, and learn where the food, the closest food bank is in their, um, is in their area. Um, and from there, reach out to, um, to their food bank. So there's a find a food bank button there. Um, and so I think that's a, that's a really effective way to do that. I think that also, you can also always call our food and other resources helpline. Um, and I can give you that number. It's 1-888-544-8773. And so we run that helpline out of our office in Lansing. And it's really meant to help direct people to the resources in which they are eligible. And that includes food banks, but also um, any other government programs that they may be eligible for. Um, so that's a good way to kind of get started depending on where, um, where they, I think they will be led to where they need to go from there. Um, and if, if, uh, and if anyone listening is interested in contributing, um, to, uh, to support the food banks, they can also do that through the Food Bank Council's website. They can also do that through, uh, feedmichigan.org. So I so please look for those places and um, and I'm sure they will um, find what they're looking for one way or the other. Well, Don, thank you so much for spending this time with me this morning, and uh, by all means, keep up the good work. Great, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. All right, take care. Bye bye. That was uh, Don Opel. She is the Director of Research and Strategic Initiatives for the Food Bank Council of Michigan. We'll have more of the Tom Sumner program straight ahead. Everybody's doing a brand new dance. 
dance now. Hi, this is Mark Farner, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. While we've been staying safe at home, scientists have been on a journey. The destination, a COVID-19 vaccine. This journey began decades ago with research into other coronaviruses. Scientists built from there with months of research and development, cooperation with other experts worldwide, and clinical trials on tens of thousands of volunteers of diverse race, age, and health status. They arrived at a safe, effective vaccine and hundreds of thousands in Michigan have already been vaccinated. But the next step is ours. We need to get the vaccine when we can. Keep wearing masks correctly and taking precautions until we reach our destination, freedom from COVID-19 and getting back to the lives we love. Discover the facts for yourself at michigan.gov slash COVID vaccine. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. The Tom Sumner Program plays host to the best political roundtable on radio every Wednesday from 10 a.m. to noon. Armchair Politics features great commentary and analysis about the headlines from local, state, and national politics with an alumni of world-class pundits, plus quotes, tweets, and those weird and wacky stories we call the X-Files. If it's Wednesday, catch Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. Discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County, where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make. Throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods, and in the diverse city beyond where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air, where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums, where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses, and where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County, where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. Your trip begins at michigan.org. Technical assistance for the Tom Sumner Program is provided by Swiftlet Technology, engineering and IT services at swiftlet.technology. I know of a place where you never get harmed, a magical place 
with magical charms indoors 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 take it away hi this is deb cherry genesee county treasurer and you're listening to the tom sumner radio show and welcome back everybody this is the tom sumner program and uh my guest this hour is um earned critical acclaim in both the comic and horror domains, but there is uh, a series that she's been working on for Disney, um, and she has uh, an eighth book in an Addictive Villains series. This one, Cold Hearted, chronicles the untold, unrequited love story of Cinderella's misunderstood stepmother, uh, probably one of the the best-known wicked stepmothers of all time. And uh, the author is Serena Valentino. She joins me by phone. Hi, Serena. Welcome to the show. Hi. How are you today? I'm, I'm good. So happy to be here. I'm good. Um, why the interest in villains? I know we love to hate them, but... <laughs> well, I mean, for me, I think, you know, growing up watching the original, you know, animated Disney classic films, um, I was always drawn to them because they seemed so mysterious to me. Um, they weren't as explored as, you know, as the other characters. And I was always asking myself why, you know, why they, you know, did the things that they did. You know, why did Snow White's, you know, stepmother, the evil queen, why did she try to have Snow White killed? And, you know, why was Maleficent in, you know, Sleeping Beauty so mad that she didn't get invited to Aurora's, you know, christening? And so I think I think that's the reason why. You know, I really wanted to discover, um, you know, discover what led these villains to make the choices that they made and, and, and end up where they did um, as we remember them in the original animated movie. This book, Cold Hearted, about Lady Tremaine, it, it, it's, would you call this her origin story? Yeah, I mean, it's a prequel. It definitely lets us know what happened, you know, before the events in the movie Cinderella, but it also um, shows us what happens after Cinderella leaves and marries her prince. So, and, and, and it isn't very often that I get to explore what happens to um, happens to the villain after the events in the film, because oftentimes they don't just survive, you know, the, the end of the tale. And so the, the book starts off after Cinderella has moved away and, you know, she's become the queen of those lands, uh, she hears that her stepsisters, Anastasia and Drusilla, are living in deplorable conditions in her old chateau with their tyrannical mother, Lady Tremaine. And Cinderella, and she appeals to her fairy godmother to, to help them. The fairy godmother doesn't want to help them because... She still thinks of Anastasia and Drizilla as the horrible girls that were so mean to Cinderella growing up. So we learn Lady Tremaine and Anastasia and Drizilla's story um, from the fairies, reading, like, they have this historical, you know, document where all the stories that have happened, like, in, in the many kingdoms, it's all documented in the Book of Fairy Tales. And they sit down and they read the Book of Fairy Tales and they learn Lady Tremaine's story, they learn Anastasia and Drizilla's story to decide whether or not Anastasia and Drizilla are worthy of being helped by the fairies. So you just can't settle for Cinderella and the prince live happily after, ever after. You, it, it always occurs to you, but wait, there's more? Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that's... <laughs> 
there's always there's always got to be more, <laughs> you know. I mean, especially you know, like you know, with Lady Tremaine. I mean, it's all well and fine, you know. I mean, I think so at the beginning of the Cinderella story, it starts off where Cinderella's father, I think, has already passed. You know, where we talk about how much he loves Cinderella, and you know, he wanted a mother for her to like raise her, and then it goes right in to, you know, Lady Tremaine just being, like, a horrible stepmother. And and the first thing that pops to my mind is, like, well, why? You know, does she start off being horrible? You know, was she just born a horrible person? I don't think that people are born horrible. I think that they have circumstances that cause, you know, that cause them to go down the path that they take. And I'm not saying that that redeems them, but it certainly gives us insight as to why they made the choices that they did. Now, this is the eighth book in the series, um, and and there's a recommended order for um, for reading the book, starting with Fairest of All, The Beast Within, Poor Unfortunate Soul, Mistress of All Evil, Mother Knows Best, Odd Sisters, Evil Thing, and now Cold Hearted. Um, how did you get tapped to do this series? How did you end up writing this series, and, and how did you pick the villains and, and what order they would go in? Yeah, um, I started my career off writing um, comic books, and um, this is like, you know, back back in the 90s, I had a couple of fairly popular uh, comic, you know, creator-owned comic book series, and one of the editors over at Disney saw the work that I was doing and actually approached me and asked me if I'd be interested in writing any Disney villain, any Disney characters, and I asked if I could write about the villains. So we started off with with uh, the Wicked Queen from Snow White. You know, we we hoped that it would eventually become a series, but we weren't sure if it would. You know, we didn't know if there'd be an audience for that. So I wrote the first book, and you know, it was it was you know fairly successful at the time. Um, you know, and I, I wasn't sure if Disney was going to ask me to do a second, and then I got to do, I got to do the the Beats Within. I created um, some original characters in in Fairest of All. There's this trio of witches I call the Odd Sisters, and they have a sister or a daughter named Cersei, and there's you know a bunch of like you know side characters that have like their own story going on that connects the entire series. And even though we do focus on each, you know, each individual villain, we do have this, this connective thread. And um, so that's part of the reason why I picked, picked the particular villains that I did, you know, so that we could, you know, introduce the Oz sisters, you know, in, you know, in Ferris of all, and then we bring them into the beast within. And we start to learn as the series goes on that these um, witches are meddling in the lives of all of these villains, and they may or may not be responsible for their downfalls. Um, and I, I have to plan the books like pretty far, you know, pretty far in advance. I mean, for example, I've got the next four already planned. I know who who I'm writing about, how it's going to connect to the connective thread. Um, you know, it's it's pretty exciting. It's it's fun. I've got this like map in my brain of you know how to open it down. <laughs> and so that means that means twelve. What what is the possibility that you will run out of Disney villains? And what would you do then? <laughs> um, well, you know, we are we we, we just um, adapted 
we're adapting, you know, the, uh, we adapted Evil Thing, the, the novel I did about Corella DeVille, um, into a graphic novel. So that was exciting, you know, to kind of return to my roots and go back to writing graphic novels. You know, so, I mean, hopefully Disney will want to keep making graphic novels, um, you know, um, based on my books. And, you know, there's always plenty of other stories to tackle in, you know, in the Disney universe and, and, and beyond. So I don't think I'm going to run out of villains anytime soon. And, you know, I, I, <laughs> at least I know I'll be doing it for the next four years, you know. But Disney keeps coming out with new movies all the time. I don't think I'm going to run out of villains. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it must be nice working with uh, uh, with Disney because there are just there's just so much creative talent there that you know, as you say, stories keep coming. Yeah, uh, Disney is a great company to work with, and they and they you know one might not expect this, but they do give me a lot of freedom and 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 the way that I want to tell these villain stories. You know, everything that happens like before the film or after the events of the film, it's really up to me. And, you know, and the stories, you know, can, are, are pretty dark at times. You know, maybe, you know, they're so dark, in fact, sometimes, like, people are like, I'm surprised, you know, that Disney, Disney published this. But they're really behind me, and they've really made me feel like these are mine. You know, that these are, these are my stories. And, and it's, it's been such a fantastic experience working with them over the years. And how do you how do you craft a backstory for someone like a lady Tremaine? Well, I I mean I I think about does it start with just the, the questions like you know what happened to Cinderella's dad you know how did you know she end up in that situation with two stepsisters and a stepmother? Well, I I usually think of it from from the villain's point of view. So, you know, I ask, you know, ask myself, you know, why, you know, why did, you know, Lady Tremaine, you know, make the choices that she did? I think about their personality. You know, I watch the films. Um, I think about their personality, the choices that they made, the way that they treat the people in their lives, like where they're living. Um, and I try to, to come up uh, with a psychological reason why they ended up in the place that, we, that, that they were. Right. So Lady Tremaine is very stoic, you know, I mean, not to be cheesy from the name of the title, but she's pretty cold hearted. Right. And to me, I was like, well, what, what happened to a person to get to a person in that place? You know, wouldn't it be interesting if she didn't start out that way? What if she was like, you know, a very open, loving, you know, generous person and she, you know, and, and, but she found herself in a situation where closing herself off made her feel more protected, made her feel strong for her, made her feel like she could continue to take the emotional blows that were being dealt to her. And that felt right to me for Lady Tremaine. You know, that made me, you know, when I thought about that, I was like, yeah, that makes sense why she ended up the way that she did, you know, and that she ends up, you know, with a man who's, you know, treating her, you know, deplorably. I mean, she thought when she met Cinderella's father, she thought that she was going to have her happily ever after. You know, she thought that she was, like, the heroine of her own tale. And she finds out, after moving to the many kingdoms to this magical land, that, that she's a villain and, and by virtue of being a stepmother. You know, she, like, got written into a role, and she felt like she didn't have any control over her own life. And the only way that she could get control was by controlling her emotions. 
And I think that could be said for a lot of people. I think a lot of people handle trauma like in in that way. And I think that that's one of the reasons why she's why she's relatable. I, mean, I don't think people will relate to the choices that she made or you know the you know the abuse that she inflicted upon her children. But I think they'd be able to relate to the events that led her to that place. And they, you know, it, it was heartbreaking writing her story because, you know, I really grew to love her. I, and I, I knew where I knew where she was going to end up and I wanted her to be in a happier place. <laughs> Does that happen when you're creating uh, the when you're fleshing out these these other villains in the series? Is there a thread that they they start out as as? basically regular people and become villains or villainess? Well, I mean, not all the time, you know. Um, sometimes sometimes the inklings, you know, the inklings are already there. Um, you know, it's like with uh, Mother Gothel, for example, from, um, you know, from her story, she, you know, she was born in a place where, you know, she, she was born in a place called the Dead Woods. Her mother was the, you know, was the queen of the dead. She was raised by, she was raised like in an environment in which, you know, that, that was normal. So she was already kind of like on that path, you know, at, you know, as, as, as a child, you know, as, as like a young person. But you see her struggling with that because she has like, she has like sisters who, who aren't that way. They, they aren't about, you know, being, you know, being like the queens of, you know, the dead woods. They just want to live their lives and be happy. And she loves nothing more than her sisters. She, she wants to make them happy. She's always kind of teetering, you know, teetering back and forth, you know, struggling with the darker side of her nature, which, you know, obviously prevails at the end. Um, you know, with, with, uh, the Wicked Queen, Grim Held, from the Snow White story, you know, she starts off as a, as a, as a you know, a pretty, you know, pretty cool person. Um, and she goes into the marriage with Snow White's father thinking that she's, you know, she's going to have a happy, you know, have a happy marriage and she's going to be like the best stepmom ever and, and have this beautiful relationship, which she does. You know, she has a beautiful relationship with Snow White's father. She has a, a lovely relationship with Snow White. Um, but there's this man in the mirror who's tormenting her, and the man in the mirror was her, the ghost of her father who used to uh, abuse her when she was younger, and it, 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 it just it warps, it warps her mind, and it, and it changes her into a different person, and it shows how, you know, cycles of abuse will perpetuate, you know, each other. Um, you know, each of the books that I write, you know, I try to tackle subjects, that are important to me and that I hope will be helpful, you know, to readers, you know, you know, reading these stories, seeing the struggles that, that, that these villains are going on and learning, you know, seeing like what happens when you, when you succumb and when, when you can't get out of the situation. And I've had a lot of readers, you know, write me to say, you know, reading your book gave me, you know, the courage to get, to get out of the abusive relationship, you know, reading your book, you know, made me feel like I could step away from, you know, this toxic relationship I had with the family or, or whatever, the, whatever the issue was. And, you know, so that's, you know, that's my motivation. Does that allow you to, to um, 
use the the villains from these Disney stories um, maybe as as cautionary tales? Well, that's what fairy tales are, aren't they? You know, they're they're cautionary tales. But I sort of like you know kind of flipped it, you know, flipped it on top, you know, and and, and, and you know, like with Ursula, you know, in the the Little Mermaid, um, you know, in my story, poor poor unfortunate soul, you know, Ursula. Um, and her brother, King Triton, um, did not have a very good relationship. And, you know, we think we see the film, we're like, well, why does Ursula like, hate Triton so much? Why is she trying to seize power from him? What does she have against, you know, Ariel? Like, what's the deal with that? So in my story, I made um, Triton and Ursula siblings. And, you know, when they were younger, you know, Triton didn't, you know, he thought that, like, her mermaid, uh, and I'm sorry, her octopus body was grotesque. She was the only one in the family that had octopus body. Everybody else, like, had mermaid bodies. But because Ursula had magical powers, she had the power to change herself into any form she liked. She liked being an octopus, but he forced her to use her magic to look like a beautiful mermaid so that she would fit in with everybody else in the kingdom. And forcing her to live in a body that wasn't hers, forcing her to be somebody who wasn't authentic to herself, caused tremendous anger and anguish within her, which led her down this path. So, you know, what I'm trying to do with these stories is, you know, showing, like, the horrible things that can happen to people when they're put in these, you know, put in these situations. You know, Ursula literally, you know, grows, her anger grows within her to epic proportions. If you remember, at the end of the Little Mermaid, she grows to Leviathan height, you know, because her anger is just growing bigger and bigger and bigger because she wasn't able to be herself. And I think that speaks volumes, you know, for, for, for a lot of, lot of people. Is there a, uh, a target audience for this series? Yeah, I mean, it is like a younger, like YA sort of, um, you know, thing. But I find that I find that uh, mostly it's adults, you know, or at least that's who I hear from most. I mean, I couldn't speak to who every, you know, everyone who buys my books, but I tend to hear mostly from adults um, who who read the series. And then when the books get, you know, sometimes they get uh, reprinted for Scholastic, then I'll start hearing from. From like the grade school, the grade school kids, which is always like fantastic, you know, to to read their handwritten letters and stuff. But yeah, I mean, it, it, there is a target, but I think uh, from my perspective, I, I feel like I hear more for, from um, from the adults. So I do, I do tend to hear from like some school librarians and um, you know teachers who you know say that the kids the kids are enjoying the book, and that always makes my heart happy to know that the kids are liking the stories. Now, this book, Cold Hearted, is the eighth book in the Villains series. Are are you working on this, uh, on the Villains series, full-time, or are you able to work on other projects as well? Um, I am working on some other projects as, as well, but also with Disney, and I'm not allowed to talk about them yet. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, I pretty, I'm pretty much working for Disney full-time. Uh, I do have some of my own projects. That, that I'm also working on, like, in my spare time. But I, I feel really lucky that I get to write, I get to write full-time, and I don't have to, to work, work a day job anymore. <laughs> and did you have to do that for a while, work a day job and, and write when you were doing uh, comics? Oh, 
absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, all, all writers do, essentially, unless, you know, unless they're rich, you know, um, you know, or their family, you know, the family gave them a trust fund or something, you know. Well, I've is, talked you know, to, I've talked them, to a few that started late in life and maybe retired and started writing, but, but that's right, not the norm. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, when I started writing comic books, I was, you know, I was still working like a day job and I was probably working a day job for like the first few novels the first few novels that I wrote, that I wrote for Disney. Um, and yeah, so, I mean, I'm feeling really lucky, but it's been a while now that I have, that I haven't talked to, but you know, it, it takes a while. It takes a while to get there. How do you uh, approach writing each novel? Do you, do you work on more than one at a time or do you knock one out and then move on to the next one? Do you write, um, are, are you a very disciplined writer or do you binge write? Oh, I mean, I, I write each villain novel one at a time, but I, I often do find myself toggling, um, toggling like maybe, you know, two, maybe sometimes three books at a time. So, for example, you know, I'll, I'll turn in like the first draft to my editor, and while she's editing that, she sent me back a draft of another book that I'm writing, on, I'm writing and I'm working on that. And so sometimes I'm working... I'm working back to back. So you have to be disciplined in that situation. I set myself a word count, you know, that I have to, you know, complete every day. Um, but if, you know, life happens and say you have to call the plumber and the plumber is there for six hours and you can't work, um, then you double your word count the next step. You do what you need to do to, to, to get the job done. Um, and then there's times when you have a, you know, you have a bit of a break. Um, luckily, uh, I've been on a bit of a break over the past couple of months, uh, which coincided with me moving into my new place. So I actually, for the first time, uh, you know, because I've moved quite a few times over the last few years, for the first time I was able to actually like unpack my entire house and get settled in before I have to get back to work. So that is a blessing. Do you have a favorite villain? I do. I love Maleficent most. She's my absolute <laughs> favorite. Maleficent son of Sleeping Beauty. I love her horns. I love I love her majesty. I love how beautiful she is. I love the way that she speaks. Everything about her is just incredible. And and, and my my book that I wrote about her, Mistress of All Evil, is like my love letter to her. <laughs> you know, so. Well that's she's, great. She's and I, this is uh, a fascinating project, to be sure, and uh, my guest is Serena Valentino. She is the author of the uh, of Cold Hearted, which is the eighth book in uh, the Villains series. Serena, thank you for spending this time with me and, and sharing your thoughts on, on this and this book and the series. Um, but I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about you and your work past, present, and future. Do you have a website? I do. It's easy. It's serenavalentino.com. And you can also find me on Facebook under Serena Valentino, Blackbird Pirate at uh, Instagram, and Serena Valentino on Twitter. Well, that is easy. (laughs) 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 Serena, thank you so much for spending this time with me. I appreciate it. Keep up the good work. Thank you so much. I appreciate you having me. I had a wonderful time. I hope you have a lovely day. Take care. Once again, that is uh, author Serena Valentino, and uh, she's writing a uh, 
Villains series. Uh, the eighth book in the series is Cold Hearted, focuses on uh, Cinderella's wicked stepmother and how she got that way. We'll have more of that. Hello there, Sunday citizens. Darkwing Duck here. And every time I'm in Flint fighting crime, I always stop by the Tom Sumner program. Don't forget, stay dangerous. Darkwing Duck out. While we've been staying safe at home, Scientists have been on a journey. The destination, a COVID-19 vaccine. This journey began decades ago with research into other coronaviruses. Scientists built from there with months of research and development, cooperation with other experts worldwide, and clinical trials on tens of thousands of volunteers of diverse race, age, and health status. They arrived at a safe, effective vaccine and hundreds of thousands in Michigan have already been vaccinated. But the next step is ours. We need to get the vaccine when we can, keep wearing masks correctly, and taking precautions until we reach our destination, freedom from COVID-19, and getting back to the lives we love. Discover the facts for yourself at michigan.gov slash COVID vaccine. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. The Tom Sumner Program has hosted live candidate forums for local, state, and national offices at bars, restaurants, coffee shops, and colleges. Armchair Politics has gone to Lansing, Frankenmuth, Birch Run, and Hell. Hell, Michigan, that is. We've done shows all the way to the Mighty Mac and back to the bricks. We've done remotes from a baseball stadium in Lansing, a grocery store opening in Flint, and from a moving train. We'd like you to tell us where to go next. You can write to us at TomSumnerProgram.com, call us at 810-339-8255, or contact us on Facebook. This is your chance to tell the Tom Sumner Program where to go. Say, objection. I object. I object to that, Your Honor. Oh, hi, Mom. What's up? Dana, what are you doing? Oh, you know, just um, Attorney General stuff. Listen, I have a legal question. What is it, Mom? I just got a call from the water company. Apparently, your father has not been paying the bill. I guess they're going to turn the water off because we owe more than $1,000 now. Can you believe it? Actually, I can't. So listen, we just have to send them $200 in Edible Arrangements gift cards and that will keep the water on. Now, here's the legal question. What is the website for Edible Arrangements? Mom, it's an imposter scam. Imposter scam. Is that .com or .edu? No, the call was a scam. Scammers will pretend to be a government agency or a utility company or someone else you might do business with. A big red flag is if they tell you that you can pay them using gift cards. So when in doubt, ask for the information to be sent to you in writing. And never give a caller or someone you don't know your personal information or your money. If you do suspect an imposter scam, Report it to my office at mi.gov slash agcomplaints. Okay, all right. 
And Dina, where do I file a complaint that my daughter hasn't visited in over a month? Does your office have a website for that? Okay, Mom, I'm hanging up now. I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection. This is U.S. Senator Gary Peters, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. And welcome back, everybody. This is the Tom Sumner Program. And uh, my guest this hour is an award-winning poet, playwright, and author with a new book called Kunto and Othered Poems by Joelle Taylor. And Joelle joins me by phone. Good morning, Joelle. Welcome to the show. Good morning. It's really lovely to be here. Um. Uh, the cover of the book is, uh, when, when you look at it, it's, um, it's spelled out, C plus N-T-O, and othered poems. What That's do you, right, yeah. What do you mean by othered poems? Well, really, the book's an exploration of different kind of countercultures, and it looks about, looks at the figure of the masculine lesbian or the butch woman, um, as a kind of position of exile. So when I was writing the book, I was thinking a lot, writing into the idea of exiled and being othered throughout my life and the women like me. So that's where that came from. Could you have, could you have written and released this book uh, 20 years ago? That's such a good question. Um, in a way, you know, I, I wonder if it might have been easier 20 years ago than it is at the moment. There was a much more kind of, there was a very strong LGBTQ plus publishing scene, certainly in the UK. So it might have been a little bit easier to sort of have an already identified audience and have these kind of conversations that the book is having. And it's, is it a collection of poetry? It is, yeah. So what it is, is, is um, a sort of a one long narrative about these women who lived um, about 20 years ago, in fact, on the UK scene in London, and the kind of the situations they got into. It's a book about, about their collectivity, about um, friendship, grief, loss. It touches on all the things that happened during the 80s and 90s, like the AIDS um, epidemic and the scare in London. It looks a lot at the, what the women did during that period as well, because it's not really very often talked about what the females were doing during this period in time. And I wanted to kind of honor those people, our ancestors, and the way they fought for our rights, you know. That's really essentially what the book is. For, for some people, and maybe a lot of people, who aren't enlightened to what goes on in parts of our culture that might be considered othered. When you explore um, the the butch kind of lesbianism, for a lot of people, and I know I've wondered this myself, Joelle, um, why do some lesbians assume a butch persona? Is, isn't that sort of mimicking the... Wow. Traditional. I know exactly what you're going to say. Yeah, I, yeah. I'm, I'm having a tough time trying to figure out a good way to ask the question, but isn't that yeah. just assuming male-female roles, and why not go with think, the ones given at birth? Yeah, because um, I 
Yes, essentially you're right, of course. There's an argument that says that Butch and Sen, for example, which I'm not into, but these kind of things are about the eroticization of power difference and it's just playing on heterosexuality. For myself, as a kid growing up, I know exactly why I like suits and why I dress like this and why I've written into this kind of culture. And it's because, for me, I don't dress as a man. I dress as freedom. I dress as escape. I dress as independence. You know, I dress as the ability to walk down the street feeling safe. And also, like my dad's a very glamorous man. And so I think when I was growing up, there was a lot of disruption, there was a lot of anger and rage around. But the one thing I always saw every day was my father put his three-piece suit on, put some aftershave on, and leave, walk out the door. So he, like I said, it all becomes a kind of symbol. And the thing is, it's a great mess that butch means masculine anyway. You know, we call it masculine presenting. But on the scene, the butchers are known as the mothers. So it's quite a lot of playing with stereotypes, I guess. Um, and some people just really fetishists, you know, and perhaps just really like those back clothing. I don't know. Um, but we're certainly not imitating heterosexual roles. It's quite the opposite. But in addition to the appearance, isn't there also an attitude attached to it? There is like, um, but it's probably not the attitude you think. So for me, Butch has nothing to do with playing snooker or watching football or fixing cars, all of which I'm <laughs> rubbish at. Literally, I like cooking. I like cooking and poetry, so I'm really terrible Butch, you know. It's more to do with, like I said, this attitude, this sense of independence. And I was asking myself, like, what were the images that really struck me when I was younger that made me kind of fixate on this, this sort of, this idea and this image? And, you know, a lot of it is, is around those images of... Doesn't, they, I don't know if I can talk about an advert here. There used to be a very famous advert on television. It's from the 1950s, and it showed a man in a trilby and a greatcoat, wandering down the Thames with a cigarette. And the, the strap line was, you're never alone with a... And then it was the brand of the cigarette. And for some reason, that's really kind of imprinted on me because it, it sort of sums up the butch ethic, which is about exile and about aloneness. You know, and we often put butch and fan together, but that's not necessary. Each exists on their own. I, you know, my, my wife isn't them at all now joel where are you talking to me from i'm talking from bristol um i did an event last night i did a book launch in bristol the big city in in the uk and so i'm normally when i talk to people from the uk it's it's from london um although i have talked to some people from the north um in the past but what i was going to ask is you know for a lot of people uh, for for the naive among us um certainly the image of a butch lesbian would in their minds would be and i don't know if there's a similar phrase for it in the uk but but here in the states would be a tomboy grown up yeah i mean essentially it's, I guess, in some ways, it's retaining things when you were... I mean, I can't ask you what it was like to be a tomboy because you were an actual boy. 
But <laughs> and I'm actually called oh, Tom. <laughs> the way our fathers, the way our fathers looked at us when they were calling us tomboys was was, was an expression of love and indulgence and joy. And over time, that slowly changed. Well, they were little. They were little girls who liked to fish or climb trees or yeah. hunt with their. I mean, dads why do we have these gender roles, though, Tom? I mean, why why can't you know? Why do butchers have to like cars? Why do boys? That's why you know, I'm trying to bring this this into mm. it. Is if it's not those things, then what is it? a sense of self, isn't it? It's a sense of being, but it's also a sense of self during an incredibly isolating, lonely time. So this book begins on a series of vitrines, you know, like museum display cases, start to spring up around London, around all the old gay venues, around all the old places that we used to meet. Um, and inside them are preserved moments in history. But it's a memoir, so it's personal history. Um, but some of the things inside, one of the things inside one of these display cases inside a snow globe is the Maryville Bar. And I'm sure you've got the same situation in the States. I think you've got 13 lesbian bars left in the whole of the United States. And we have one um, specifically lesbian bar left in London. So I wanted to kind of, the other part of it is that it's about community. That's why we identify as we do. Because at first you're looking for strong women, for images of strong women that you that from role models for you and that you can work towards being um, and then you enter the space like the Maryville Bar or wherever it is it's a symbolic space you know a holy space because you're entering a sense of yourself and a sense of community so that's why and I think a lot now to be clear on the LGBT plus scene um, it's not you know it's it's um it's a rich history, but it isn't talked about much. You know what it's like as people grow, I could say grow older, but as young people come, new generations come in, they have their own things they want to talk about. And Butch has really been lost, you know. And, and some of the things that women did are remarkable. So it's not just an identity, you know, it's a history. And it's a politics. More with author Joelle Taylor from the UK, straight ahead. <laughs>
that dial, you're listening to Tom Sumner. 